Vintage History, the podcast that merges wine and history, the two best things. Two history teachers, united by their love of wine and passion for history, needed an excuse to drink. So, we made up a podcast. This week, we are looking at... M-D-C-L-X-V-I. The only year to contain each Roman numeral once in descending order. It's nice. That's geeky. <laughs> 1666. If you haven't worked that out. <laughs> Our listeners will have just snapped to that one. So what happened in 1666? So much. Well, <laughs> for example, um, if you're on the Gregorian calendar, you, you started 1666 10 days before the Julian calendar. That always confuses me. Yeah. Um, in February, the joint English and Scottish Royal Court returned to London as the Great Plague of London subsided. Little did they know what dramas were going to unfold later on in the year. Which um, we'll be talking about later. We are indeed. A day of humiliation and fasting is held in London, a month after the Great Fire of London. Yeah, three days after my birthday. Oh, yes. And in September, Parliament passed an act for working out what to do with the disposal of property for the people missing from the fire. Oh, the government just keeps it, I presume. Uh, I think that was pretty much it, yeah. (laughs) Sounds about right. Okay, um, what else have we got? The most intense tornado on record in English history with winds of more than 213 miles per hour. Uh, there's the Battle of Rullian Green in Pentland Hills near Mid- Midlothian in Scotland. Yeah. As the brief Pentland Rising, uh, a rebellion by the Covenanters who opposed changes in the Church of Scotland. Um, in terms of births, the only one I saw of note was Mary Astle, the English writer, uh, and deaths, just for his name, Song Yingzing. <laughs> Um, who was a Chinese encyclopedist. Well, what are we going to look at today for 1666? What are our event person invention? Event was an easy one. Great Fire. Yeah, maybe we designed this whole thing around that. Yeah. Okay, so Great Fire of London is our event. It is. Our person is Mary... Astle. Astle. The first ever feminist, apparently. Yeah, she's the one. She's described as a proto-feminist. I like that. I like that. That's really good. And then our idea or invention is Sir Isaac Newton's splitting of light using prisms. You will definitely be able to explain that really well. I did physics for a level. I get it. Okay, you can do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's get started. We'll start with our event. Event. Our event is the Great Fire of London, which we all know started accidentally in a bakery in Pudding Lane. Sparks, embers... Catching light. Rages for four days on a hot, dry summer, uh, basically because all the buildings are made of wood and straw. And too close together. And too close together. Uh, so, essentially, should we do some should we do some statistics? Yes. Go on then. So, it destroyed around about 370 acres of the city. 13,000 houses, 84 churches, and 44 company halls were burned down. Cutting. However, according to the official statistics, no more than 10 people are thought to have died, probably not including poor people. Or, well, yeah. Fewer than 10 important people died, hmm. um, which I think is a fascinating statistic, given that it raged for four days and they couldn't stop it. I think quite a lot of people died in the refugee camps yeah. afterwards. And uh, rebuilding. Rebuilding the city. More people died. Yeah, more people that. died. That's... <laughs> 
insane. But anyway, uh, we've got a really good record of the Fire of London because of the inquiry that went on after it, but also because of the famous Samuel Pepys who wrote his um, diary. And one of the quotes that he writes about is really <laughs> depressing. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it depends how you feel about these animals. But uh, He says, among other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive were loth to leave their houses, but hovered among the windows and balconies till they, some of them burned their wings and fell down. So it basically describes all the pigeons being burnt to death. I mean, I have nowhere to land, therefore I'm just going to hover above the fire till it takes me. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, apparently, at the time, people didn't think it was an accident, or some people didn't think it was an accident. I think most people didn't, because literally, like, a week before we'd gone over to Holland, hadn't we, and set fire to one of our cities, and everyone's like, "Mm, a bit suspicious that then a week later, London's on fire. Yeah, so everyone thought it was, like, the Dutch, or slash any immigrants, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah... Somebody spread a rumour that the French had invaded and uh, angry mobs hunted anyone who appeared to be foreign. Woman got boob chopped off because they thought the eggs she was carrying were grenades. Grim. Yeah. Wow. This is how people behave when all of their um, whole entire lives are being burnt down. But Scream. anyway, so we we weren't being attacked by the Dutch. No. It was because the wind was so um, sort of fierce. Yeah, it, been it was a gale. Whipping through, hadn't it? Well, I mean. um, King Charles II tried to calm matters by going to the new camp of 100,000 homeless people and declaring that the fire was an act of God. So he tra- he was actually, he well, I say logical. More logical, more logical than, than... I mean, his brother, he, he went round the city cutting down people who were being lynched. He, he went saving the, the foreigners, which makes sense, because, I mean, that, that poor fella confessed as well, didn't he? Robert Hubert, the watchmaker. Yeah, he says he deliberately started it with 23 conspirators, but... Um, once they started to question him, uh, his confession seemed to sort of like change a bit, and he was tried and hanged. But then it <laughs> turns out that he was actually at sea at the time that the fire started, and that the fire had indeed been an accident. So no one really knows why he confessed to it. It feels very much Marinus van der Lubbe. Oh, <laughs> bless! Yeah. Didn't stop him for a while, though, did it? Uh, one of the monuments, well, the monument, monument. Uh, up until the nineteenth century, it said that the fire had been started by Catholics. <laughs> God. Well, really, like, when something like that happens, you need someone to blame, don't you? But essentially, it did lead to lots of changes, though, the Great Fire of London. Mm, positive. Um, yeah, so although it raged for four days, and some some Londoners thought the fire was a punishment for the city's greed, uh, so it was like a it was like being s- smited, smote, smoten. Mm. Um, and also, how they dealt with it uh, is quite interesting. So there wasn't a fire brigade at the time. No, the army just does fire breaks, don't they? Smash yeah. down some buildings. They like basically blow up buildings mm. in the path of the fire to stop it from burning, but they can't quite do it quick enough because of the wind. It doesn't help. The mayor originally says it's not even a proper fire. He says that he could piss it out. No, a woman could piss it out. <laughs> so not even a man. So, well, uh, And then he goes back to bed. As a result of the fire, well, some people profited. Mm-hmm. So property damage from the fire was about £1.5 billion. Back then, tenants were responsible for all of the damage and had to keep paying their rent. I'm pretty sure that still would be the case with some student lets yeah. today. Um, so therefore, um, there was London's first insurance company created, the Fire Office, to prevent that happening again in the mm. future. 
So um, by 1690, one in ten houses in London had some form of home insurance as a result. And, and the king had brought in, um, he passed uh, the Rebuilding Act of 1667 that said that all new houses had to be built of brick or stone and they needed to be able to access the fire hydrant system in the city because the previous system had been pipes yeah. made of wood. <laughs> so, yeah, so when the fire sat started, the pipes burnt. Famously, St Paul's Cathedral was destroyed in the fire, um, but essentially it had been sort of in a state of disrepair for the last 50 I, years. I was surprised by that. They, like, there was talk about pulling it down anyway because it was a symbol of Catholicism and it was pretty, you know, like you said, derelict. It possibly did them a favour. Uh, yeah, and at some point was used by Oliver Cromwell to stable his horses. That's what St Paul's was used for. <laughs> so when architect Sir Christopher Wren, famous for his his version of St Paul's as we know today, <coughs> he submitted designs to sort of improve it, basically. Changed it on its axis a little bit as well, didn't it? It's not quite east-west, just because he didn't trust the medieval foundations. He kind of didn't sit on the footprint fully. He was also responsible for building the monument as well, wasn't he? He was. His original plan was that this whole new city was going to be laid out, kind of spiralling away from the monument, but it was going to cost too much money because it would have meant taking land off people for the houses that needed to be replaced. So it was cheaper to let people rebuild kind of on the floor plan of the original city. But, yeah. It took six years to build the monument. It is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's true. It's 61 metres tall, which represents the distance between Pudding Lane and the location of the monument. They reckon that St Paul's burnt down quicker as well because all the locals have thought, well, the one thing that will survive this fire is the church, and they just filled it up with loads of books and manuscripts. They essentially packed it full of paper. (laughs) It just went up even worse. Oh, God. Yeah. The Worshipful Company of Stationers, that was. Oh, man, imagine what was lost in there. I know. There we go. There was the Great Fire of London. So... Hot stuff. I mean, that's pretty significant. Oh, they're (gasps) making decisions. We better move on. Okay. Ideas. Idea or invention. Apples. Isaac Newton invented apples in 1666. I heard he invented gravity. Yes, before that, things just kind of floated <laughs> around. Uh, no, so this <coughs> isn't quite the gra- the discovery of gravity, but it is, what is it, to do with refraction of light? Yes, it's proving that light, um, it, he was questioning the idea that it was a wave and suggesting that it may be particles. But do we want to do a little bit of background on who he was before we get into his idea? Yeah, why not? He's an interesting character, isn't he, Newton? I didn't know that he was born prematurely and he could fit into a a quart-sized mug. That's teeny tiny. Apparently, according to his mother. And he was born on Christmas. Yeah, Chris, Christmas Day, wasn't it? 25th. And um, named after his father, who died three months previously. Yeah. And his mother left him. Yeah, when, uh, when he was three, three years old. Yeah, Remarried and, yeah, and then left him with his grandparents. No, not great, but yeah. it... Then, by not having a family, I, I read probably had Asperger's. When you read through his diaries and his letters and correspondence, he, he has all the telltale signs. Yeah. So, maybe a difficult child to look after, explaining why she said, Enough's enough, I'm gonna <laughs> start again. <laughs> Says here, sought solace in books, uh, was unmoved by literature and poetry, hmm? uh, but loved the <laughs> mechanics and technology, inventing an elaborate system of sundials which was accurate to the minute. That sounds very much like, yeah. Uh, while his mother hoped he would run the family farm, his uncle and his headmaster realised Newton was destined for an intellectual life, i.e. 
he couldn't work with his hands. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. He, went he was a to, genius. He so. was. Went to Cambridge, went to Trinity College. His uh, professor was Isaac, just to confuse matters even oh, more. Gosh. Isaac Barrow. Um, he got him into calculus, which is like branches of mathematics where you know like the solution isn't known and it's trying to work things out. Um, and he, he kind of got four years in there, didn't he, before the plague hit? Yeah, and he also uh, he tries to hunt out like new ideas, like uh, like, like um, from Descartes as mm. well, that argue that the universe is governed by mechanical laws. So it's all about that idea that there are rules to how things <laughs> happen in the planet, and that things can be calculated rather than uh, you know God creates yeah. everything. I remember when I started at my last school talking to the kids about, you know, lockdown's not a bad thing because Isaac Newton, when he was in lockdown due to the plague, that's when he was at his most productive. And if you work from home, it, you can actually push yourself to new levels. When he went home, he started looking into optics. That was kind of his thing. This is when he does his discovery a year later. But my favourite bit was that he experimented by sticking a needle into his eye to see what the effect would be on the basis of, ah, I think it's a hole in the middle of your eye. I'm going to test it with a needle. Uh, his theory of optics made him reconsider the design of the telescope. So mm-hmm. it used to be enormous and cumbersome, and he t- changes it by using mirrors instead of lenses. Um, and so he could create a more powerful intr- instrument, ten times smaller than a traditional telescope. And it's when people like that that then he starts to talk about his discoveries with light because he thinks, oh, maybe people will listen to me. Um, um, but then somebody slags him off and says that they can't reproduce his prism experiments. Yeah, um, the Royal Society basically say that they can't produce reproduce it. Because he intentionally doesn't tell them how he's done it because he doesn't want anybody stealing his ideas. Yeah, the- He then sort of like exiles himself from society and becomes absorbed in the study of alchemy, which is like yeah. a weird study of the nature of life and the, uh, like a medieval forerunner to chemistry and it's all about sort of like magic and trying to make gold out of base metal stuff yeah yeah so um basically even though newton discovers all these amazing things about the universe he still believes in like magic and witches and things (sighs) and yeah he's got really weird not weird but odd religious beliefs and he kept them secret till very recently because his descendants didn't want his scientific achievements to be tarnished by his slightly kooky religious thoughts. He was also obsessed with numbers, wasn't he? Like the number seven. Colours that light's made up of. He intentionally chose seven colours, even though we all know it's a spectrum and every colour is represented. Yeah. That's the whole point. He had seven because it's... Isn't it something to do with like it being a sort of like religiously significant number or, or something to do with... to like this, ancient Babylon. Yeah. That was their base number system. But yeah, so he publishes his Principia Mathematica, a foundation of modern science, uh, which basically is what is now considered to be the foundation of like modern physics. Isn't it? Yeah, 20 years in the making, two years in the writing. Um, and then he becomes an MP? Uh, yeah, he doesn't like the idea of James II re-Catholicising uh, Cambridge University. So he gets himself elected and but then doesn't really make that much impact. He's recorded once making a speech in Parliament. <laughs> he said it was stuffy and can somebody open the window, basically. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, but then also, as Warden of the Royal Mint, uh, Newton attempts to make Britain's currency the most stable in the world. Succeeds as well. He gets that job for life, doesn't he? he yeah. He's part of the introduction of, like, um, bevelling on the edges of coins to stop people clipping them and things. He's... Yeah, he he also has the last laugh because the Royal Society um, elect him as president in 1703. 
um, which means that he can be like after they after they sort of pushed him out before. Yeah, and ends up dying aged eighty four with full honours in Westminster Abbey. Yeah, so uh, he's most famous for his laws of motion and theory of gravity. If there is no outside force, a stationary object will not move, and without an outside force, a moving object will not stop. The second law is the more force equals more acceleration. And the third law is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. For instance, a balloon goes up and air goes down. (laughs) I remember those. Anyway, what was his actual invention? What was his idea? (laughs) Well, uh, one thing that his idea definitely wasn't was investments in the stock market because he lost the equivalent of $3 million by today's standards, uh, investing £20,000 in the South Sea Company. Um, you weren't allowed to mention South Sea in his presence after that happened. <laughs> oh. But yeah, his idea. So he was interested. Grimaldi had produced his work on diffraction, which said that light was made of waves. And basically, when you pass light through a glass, it's corruptions in the glass that cause these colours to appear. Oh, OK. Um, what he was suggesting is that um, it, it's particles and it it's the the diffraction occurs and you get the colour spectrum because it's you, you can divide out the colours because the diff, the colours reflecting off of something. something. So he proves that that idea of waves is false because he reflects or refracts light. He passes a beam of light, white light, through two prisms, which were held at an angle that split it into a spectrum when passing through the first prism, but then it was recomposed back mm-hmm. into white light by the second prism. So that disproves the theory that it's imperfections in the glass that are, pre- that are creating the colours. So he, he describes it as a crucial experiment. But then won't tell anybody how he's done it. So it's for... Years and years afterwards, people keep saying, well, we can't recreate your experiment, so you're wrong. And he says that people are using rubbish prisms. If they can't recreate his experiments, it's because they're using Italian ones, and they should be using ones made in London. (laughs) And then eventually, in 1704, he publishes Optics, which is his kind of theory of light, ages after he's done the experiments, uh, and he shows how to reconstruct the experiments in a bit more detail, which means that people can actually recreate um uh, my question is uh what does this actually do it advances our understanding of how light works which leads on to things like fiber optic cables and being able to have the internet and jazz like that yeah okay tv whoa okay (laughs) newton's starting to look pretty significant (laughs) (laughs) all right but is he as significant as our person? Person. So our our individual is Mary Astle. Though she's not, it's not very well known today, but she is credited by many historians as being the first English feminist. Proto-feminist. I prefer that term, proto-feminist. Yeah. Uh, so she's the first feminist English writer. Yeah. She was respected as a philosopher, a pamphleteer, and a polemist in her own right. She was born in Newcastle in 1666 to a coal merchant gentry family. She didn't receive a formal education because she was woman. a woman. Um, and uh, But she was tutored by her uncle, Ralph Astle, who attended the University of Cambridge during the important philosophical movement known as Cambridge Platonism. Mm. So she had... She did have an education. She got a good grounding there, didn't she? And then her dad went and died when she was 12. Didn't have a dowry. Had to go live with her mum and her aunt. Then her uncle dies, so the education kind of ends. And she just reads anything that she can get a hand on. 
Um, yeah, so essentially it has been suggested that because she lost these um, key male figures in sort of her early years and then came of age in a small community of women, that might have been a crucial sort of influence mm. on her feminist outlook. Within another eight years, a mother and her aunt have also passed away and now she's an orphan uh, with no prospects for marriage. She says, I'm going to London, which at that time would be pretty unusual to leave Newcastle and go down to the big smoke. Yeah, she seems to have been incredibly intelligent and like, if she had been a man, she would have pursued sort of further education, um, maybe published volumes on, or like, you know, things like that, but it wasn't really that simple as a woman. But she does manage to get herself hooked in with Lady Catherine Jones, who's sort of like a sponsor, but yeah, not quite. Yeah, sort of like um, artists, intellectuals, wealthy families seeking sort of like, you know, she gets herself in with the right crowd, sort of begins her literary career. Which is basically writing to people who she disagrees with and slagging off their ideas. Yeah, and she also uh, writes to a Cambridge Platonist named John Norris criticising his theories and they write back and forth quite sort of like, um, you know, heatedly. Uh, and he then changes his argument uh, because <laughs> she convinces him. He publishes the letters like, nah, this is, I've changed my mind, this is why. Yeah, so she was obviously quite um, persuasive. Um, she also challenged Hobbes and Locke. I mean, I used to teach them for the A level. So, like, some of the the real giants of philosophy, and she's just like writing them letters, yeah. going, "I think you're wrong." Uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury, Daniel Defoe. Wow. So yeah, she gets uh, she sticks her oar in. I quite like the sound of this Mary Astle. She wrote six books and two pamphlets, but not like little pamphlets, big pamphlets on education, politics, and religion all of which have kind of uh, an early feminist agenda and basically say women need an education and that's why women are ignorant. Yeah, she um, says that um, the role of education in women's lives is basically quotes as being reducing her to um, tulips in a garden. So they're not not useful, but they basically just look good and, um, well, don't do anything else, that's it. She she's quite radical in some of her mm. ideas, though. In her um, two part book, a serious proposal to the ladies for the advancement of their true and greatest interest by a lover of her sex, not particularly catchy title, but um, she proposes um, a female religious and intellectual community that would provide women with higher education and replace the convent. Yeah, because they haven't had those since Henry's dissolution of the monasteries. Women didn't have a place to go and learn and. Be women together, did they? People mocked her for suggesting a Protestant nunnery. Yeah. But future Queen Anne the First kind of liked the idea, and she even thought about giving money to set it up. Yeah, but then it was too Catholic, so it wasn't implemented in yeah. her lifetime. She encouraged women to choose marriage partners more rationally. So basically, yeah, actually think about who you're marrying rather mm. than yeah. And then eventually, she kind of gave up writing, went back to Lady Catherine, her good friend, and kind of sparring partner for debates, uh, and they set up a charity school for girls in Chelsea. She dies in 1731 from breast cancer, allegedly spending her final days in voluntary isolation in a room beside her own coffin, which is pretty gnarly. That is goth. Yeah. Feminist, goth. She's got it all. Yeah. I like her. Um, she was celebrated for her literary achievements after she died. She was well known on, in sort of political and philosophical circles. But um, yeah, her feminist 
ideologies sort of are imitated in women's writings for generations to come. Without her getting the credit necessarily. Yeah, so she kind of slips under the radar a little bit. Last orders? Last orders. Clinky! <laughs> Last orders. Most significant of these. I'm going to knock the fire out. I, I You're think... going to knock the fire out? Wow, okay. I, I, although it changed London... Did it change history? What about insurance? <laughs> That's a good question. Okay. But then there was there was already insurance, like with right, you can disagree with me, but I, I just I feel like important for us as Englishmen, but maybe not that in significant the in the world. Whereas Isaac Newton, with his work on optics, transformed science and our understanding of particle theories. Yeah, I think he's probably going to have to get it, isn't he, Isaac Newton? I quite like uh, Mary Astle. Sounds like a very interesting. I'd be tempted individual. to stick a lesson in on her. I feel like she needs more. Yeah, the the more of a platform. The founder of uh, feminist theory. She sounds and that awesome. she has the respect of so many people who are well known. Yeah, so she must have been pretty prolific in her lifetime. But then, you know, we'd never heard of her now, have we? Yeah. But then, has she like then influenced like other feminist writers like I don't know Mary Wollstonecraft? Mm. So yeah. Yeah, she's had an influence, but yeah, I think I'd have to agree with you and go with Isaac. It was a scene to said about the internet, wasn't it? Yeah, and TV. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess that is a sort of like technological scientific advancement that has changed the world. But not to say that she isn't important too in fighting the cause for women. Yeah. Which I don't think Isaac did, as he never got married and didn't seem to show any romantic interests. I don't think he liked people, men or women. No, he did threaten to burn down his house with his stepfather in it no. at one point. So, as an individual, I'm not sure I would like Isaac Newman <laughs> as much as I would like Mary Astle. Yeah, if um, we're having but, a dinner. Yeah, I'd invite her. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be about sitting at the table while he moves glasses about trying to refract <laughs> like. Uh, but yeah, his invention is probably the most significant one. Yeah. There cool. we go. Yeah, decided. Easy peasy. Right, what are we doing next? Christmas special next. Christmas. Christmas um, special. Next, we are doing the year 1843. Oh, we're not doing the year one then. <laughs> when, birth, when was Jesus. that? Birth, Jesus. Um, no, we're doing 1843 because it is the year that A Christmas Carol was published. Oh. So we're linking it with that and that's oh, going like to be it. our... That's our Christmas hook. Yeah. For the bauble yeah. of our podcast. So that's it. 1843 cool. next time. Right then.